Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In this 2016 panel discussion, members of the Convention of States organization answer questions from a group of state legislators. The panel features former U.S. Senator Dr. Tom Coburn, Article 5 scholar Robert G. Nadelson, Legislative Director Rita Peters, and Convention of States co-founders Michael Farris and Mark Meckler. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We're excited to have you. And what we're going to do to kick off this morning's session is we're going to give you a really special virtual window into the grassroots army that is really the heart and soul of the Convention of States project. Hi, I'm Dale Parrish, District 85 Captain in Indiana. Ron Cuff, I'm a District Captain in California and a veteran. Rhonda in Michigan, District 68. Jeff Traver, I'm District Captain from Virginia 33. My name is Manny Cambo. I'm Ed Lulay, Convention of States, District Captain, Tennessee 32. I'm Connie Denault, Convention of States Volunteers, St. Petersburg, Florida. Susan Rallison of Bellevue, Ohio, Captain of District 88. My name is John Thurrell. I'm the State Director for Convention of States in New Hampshire. I've been working on this Convention of States for several months. Hi, I'm Denton Florian from Texas House District 15. My name is Mark Joseph Stefanzi. I am the 29th District Captain in Virginia. When I took the oath for the Air Force to defend the country and the Constitution, I took that as a lifetime oath, serving as a civilian today to save the Constitution and the United States. I support the Convention of States because our federal government is out of control. We have a Congress that is just drunk with spending. And we have an executive branch that is drunk with power. We're empowering ourselves to do something about it. To do our duty as American citizens. By calling an Article 5 Convention of the States. The United States government won't reform itself without a Convention of States. It's really the only way to bring this country back to being the constitutional republic it was meant to be. Representative Casey Cox and Senator Liz Brown, thank you for supporting Convention of States. Thank you to Representative Frank Edelblut, who sponsored our legislation last year in the New Hampshire House. Thank you, Larry Betts and Senate member Alan Hayes. And I want you to know that we've got your back. And together, we're going to make history. Convention of States project is really an opportunity for people around the country to generate the enthusiasm that will be necessary in order to get 34 states. This is a fight you can join and feel proud of. It's amazing the energy that's behind this movement. It's the best thing that's happened in a long time. It gives me a future and it gives me a hope to hold on to. And we're working hard every day. For my kids and my grandkids, just a glimpse of the grassroots army across the nation who has your back as state legislators when you champion our Article 5 applications in your states. Now I'd like to bring up Jenny Rapini. Jenny, if you could make your way up here. Jenny Rapini is the coordinator of the largest Tea Party group in the nation. She's from California. And Jenny is now spending her time as a full-time volunteer 
for our organization, and she serves as our grassroots director. So I'd like to ask Jenny to share with you just a little bit more about our grassroots. Well, when I was asked to try to put into words what the grassroots are, <laughs> what the grassroots have accomplished, it was, and, and to put it down on a piece of paper, it reminded me of when you drive in your car and you can look out your windshield and you can see everything that's ahead of you very clearly, even things on the side. But when you're trying to look at what you've passed, what's in the past, you're only looking through that little tiny rearview mirror and you miss a lot of details and you don't see the whole picture. And so that's what it was like for me in trying to put this down on paper. So I'm going to do the best I can. But trying to reflect back was difficult because there were so many things that took place all at once and spontaneously. So I want to be clear that we didn't sit down and say, OK, we're grassroots. Um, we are going to write out a plan, and we're going to implement that plan. That isn't how it worked. It came about from our heart, not from our head. So putting grassroots down on paper is not an easy task. But it came from an overwhelming desire to have freedom and liberty in America. And it may have begun with the title Tea Party. And yes, I'm still involved with that organization. But it has evolved into so much more because it started off as we got to take back America, which is pretty nebulous. And now it's centered around a definitive cause that we can accomplish that. And that's through the Article 5 Convention of States. So I first want to tell you what I believe the definition of the grassroots, of, of what happened with the grassroots activism that we all saw spring up just a few years ago, not that many years ago. Guess what it is? It's a spontaneous combustion of patriotic, constitutionally loving Americans. It was made up of men and women, boys and girls, of all ethnicities, of all ages, young, old, men, women, um, various religious backgrounds, and various economical areas as well. It came from white color, blue color, rich, poor. There were just people that came together under a cause of knowing that liberty was at risk in the United States. Most were politically conservative, but very inexperienced, though intuitive enough to know that America was at risk, as never before in our history. Like I said, it was made up of constitution-loving Americans, men and women who had been pretty silent. We had been raising our families, being good parents, good grandparents, good citizens within our community. Many were involved with their churches or in other community organizations, but really hadn't been involved in the political process in any depth. Maybe on the local level, but not so much on the national level. Until we saw the ever-expanding reach 
of the federal government until we saw the unbridled attack and assault and shredding of our Constitution. The consequences were that a sleeping giant was awakened and a grass fire started across the nation and spread from shore to shore. It's not just in any one local area, it has spread across the country. One thing that still baffles those who try to describe or try to understand the grassroots is that we really don't rally around a person or even a political party. Instead, we rally around a cause, and the cause that we are rallied around right now is liberty and freedom. Even though they've never really tried to find out who we are, we have been described by the media and even some politicians as astroturf, Nazis, ignorant and uninformed, intolerant, racist, liars, troublemakers, that has an element of truth to it, <laughs> and irrelevant. But they're wrong, and their definitions don't define the grassroots. Here is who we are. We are Americans who love our Constitution. We believe in the sanctity of America's founding ideals and the core values of fiscal responsibility, constitutionally limited government, free markets, and moral accountability. And one thing we are is fiercely loyal to those of you who uphold those core values. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you as you fight for liberty and freedom on America's behalf. And we will have your back. We're willing to fight to the death to uphold the republic that was handed to us by our founders. And I can assure you that we have staying power and that we're here to fight that battle wherever it takes us for as long as it takes us. We've been misunderstood, we've been misrepresented, we've been maligned, we've been horribly slandered, we've been reported as dead, <laughs> and we have been called valueless. But we're still here. And we're still making noise. And we're still accomplishing things. And we're not going anywhere until freedom and liberty, as our founders intended, has become the heart of our nation again. And now our rallying cry that we come around is the Article 5 Convention of States. We want to rein in the power and the jurisdiction of the federal government. We want state sovereignty back, as the founders intended. We want to save America, and we believe that this is our only hope. For sure, we have been underestimated by those who don't understand us, and you know what, that's okay. I really don't mind that, in fact, I like that. Because Convention of States has a grassroots army of hundreds of thousands of citizen volunteers, just like me, 
who are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with legislators just like you who are willing to stand up and to restore liberty and freedom in the United States of America once again through an Article 5 Convention of States. We have petitions signed in every single legislative district in this nation. <laughs> I can assure you that the grassroots is ready and mobilized to fight this fight and to support you as you support our Constitution. When you commit to fighting for Article 5 and this Convention of States, you have our word that we will stand with you, behind you, alongside you. We are Liberty's advocate. We are her enemies nightmare. <laughs> We're the grassroots. We're the convention of states. We are America's hope. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jenny. In a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to all of our distinguished panelists here, and we're going to transition into a time of taking your questions and, and really doing more of a, of a training um, period. But before we do that, I'd like to ask Mark Meckler to come up to say a few words. Mark Meckler is the co-founder of Tea Party Patriots and he's the president of Citizens for Self-Governance, which is the umbrella organization for the Convention of States project. And I want him to come up now for a moment because I know from working with Mark every day that he has a real and contagious passion for the grassroots, for training them, equipping them, and mobilizing them into action. And I just would like for him to come up for a moment and share a little bit of his vision for that with you. Well, thank you guys for being here. As I said earlier, if you're in the plenary session, it's, it's always an honor for me to be at ALEC. Yeah, because I get to be with people who are on the front lines of the political fight in America. I'm a very unlikely guy to be involved in politics. Six years ago, before the Tea Party movement started, I'm a lawyer, my practice was at home, I have an office out in my barn, I was training horses and teaching my kids to play soccer. And I never intended to be involved in politics in this country. In fact, like so many people, I was just disgusted with politics in this country. Tea Party movement started, sort of swept me along, and I was blessed to help co-found the largest Tea Party organization. Uh, the Tea Party Patriots grew into the largest Tea Party organization in the nation. And when I say I was blessed to found it, I, I mean that. And what I mean by that is it, it wasn't because of me that it happened. And I, I go on TV and people will say, Neil Cavuto is famous for this, he'll say to me, oh, I've got Mark Mecker, the leader of the Tea Party movement. And I'm not a leader of the Tea Party movement. I didn't found or start the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement was something that was in the hearts and minds of Americans for a very long time. And when Rick Santelli did his now famous rant on CNBC, he literally just threw a match into a puddle of gasoline. And in founding Tea Party Patriots, we just gave that fire a place to, to burn and to express itself, to spread across the land. And that's been my mission and my passion ever since, is to serve the grassroots, because that's all I am. I'm not a politician. 
I wasn't a professional activist. I was just a dad and a soccer coach, and, and that's all I ever intended to be, and that was enough. I would achieved my goals in life. My biggest goal in life was to be a dad and raise a couple of kids. I think we've done okay. I have a son who's in the United States Marines. That's pretty good, right? So, so that was my biggest goal in life, and it had been achieved, and then, the, then I got swept into politics, and I started meeting grassroots activists all over the country. And you hear people on TV and you hear politicians with disdain for the grassroots. I mean, you hear it over and over. I travel around the country, I still hear politicians say it to me. I hear opponents of Article 5 literally tell me, and I've had this, it's on the radio, it's in print, that Americans are stupid and immoral and cannot be trusted with our Constitution. And I can tell you, being in 31 states this year, Americans are extraordinary. The genius of America is alive and well. People ask all the time, where, where are the Madisons and the Adams and, and the Washingtons and the Patrick Henrys? I can tell you they're in your states. Some of them are in your legislatures. You know them, right? They're out there. They're hardworking men and women that are involved in the fight for liberty. Some of them sitting at this table with me today, right? So when people say we don't have those kind of people in America anymore, that's outrageous. It's a slander to the American people. I, I appear in before some of your legislatures, and in the audience with me are great patriots who close their businesses, who take their kids out of school to come be involved in your legislatures. Great American patriots. I hope none of you ever underestimate them. They are the heroes of this country. They've always been the heroes of this country. Always. Since the very beginning. You know, we know the stories uh, around which we hear about the American Revolution. We hear about the Henrys and the Adams and Madisons. All great men, no doubt. Great families, no doubt. But those are the stories that we hear. But the real story of the American Revolution is the story of your constituents. It's the stories of the moms and dads, the small business owners, the retired grandparents, the people who volunteer in their church. Those are the same people who fomented and organized and fought in the American Revolution. There's no difference. No difference. Sometimes I was of the habit when I started in this movement of saying about the grassroots that our founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And I would say to people, we aren't asked to do so much. We don't have to put our lives at risk. And I was corrected several times by a very good friend of mine and mentor, Eric O'Keefe, and he said, Mark, you underestimate what you're asking people to do. What you are actually asking them to do, what we are asking the grassroots to do, we are calling them not to a small task, but to greatness. Same thing you're being called to. This is not a small task. We're not just asking you to sponsor and pass a resolution. We are calling you to a greater calling to a greater cause, to something more important than any of us individually, something more important than our families, something more important than our communities. The idea of this nation, we are calling you to the idea that you are put in your seat today to do this one thing. One thing. What more important thing can you do in your legislature today than to save this nation on behalf of posterity? What more important thing do you have that will come before your legislature this year? Is it your budget? Is it some environmental law? Is it some reform of some regulatory agency? Or is it the idea that the founders gave you in Article 5 as sacred trustees for your constituents the ability to restrain the federal beast that they knew would grow out of control? <clears throat> I can tell you when I travel around the country, there is nothing people care about more than this. Nothing. Zero. You know, I'm not an expert in a lot. I'm an expert in grassroots activists because that's where I spend my time every year with thousands and thousands of them. 
quarter of a million airline miles this year just to be with the people that I love, to elevate them, to serve them, because they know that the country is at risk. And more than anything else, what they want you to do is to stand for them, to be their elected representatives, and to restrain the beast in Washington, D.C. So what I want to assure you is that our focus as an organization is on them. It's on the grassroots. That's who I was born to serve. That's who you were elected to serve. Our job is to elevate the grassroots, to give them the tools, to give them the training. Now around 800,000 activists in the database, over a million people on our Facebook page, active petitions in every jurisdiction, every district, in your state, in your district, guaranteed petitions, lots of them. And if you need more, we'll get more. So what I want you to know is that we are here to serve the grassroots because they are called to a higher calling and they are here with us to serve you, to help you in this mission, this mission that only you can accomplish. And that mission is, on behalf of your constituents, on behalf of the founders and everybody in between, and for posterity to restrain the federal beast. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Thanks, Mark. So what we'd like to do now is to spend some time helping you to be prepared to be the champion of these grassroots folks who are waiting for you to help them usher our Article 5 application through your state legislature. So we're going to, in just a moment, open it up for questions from you. And we have an amazing panel right here who is ready to help you be prepared for any question or objection that you might hear in a committee hearing or during a floor debate. So I already introduced Mark. Um, sitting next to Mark is Mike Ferris. Mike is one of my personal heroes. He is a co-founder of the Convention of States Project, and he has been active in conservative politics for is it over 40 years, Mike? Yeah, it's about 40. <laughs> 40 years, long enough. He is a constitutional lawyer, scholar, and author, and he's the founding president of both the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and Patrick Henry College. Sitting next to Mike, we have Professor Rob Nadelson, who has been cited, ladies and gentlemen, by the U.S. Supreme Court a total of 17 times in five separate cases just since 2013. That is incredible. We're so pleased to have him here. He is widely acknowledged to be the country's leading scholar on the Constitution's Article 5 process. And he is the Independence Institute's Senior Fellow in Constitutional Jurisprudence, and he heads the Institute's Article 5 Information Center. That's Rodney And last, but certainly not least, we have Senator Tom Coburn, who spent 10 years serving the people of Oklahoma in the U.S. Senate. Senate. He has faithfully exposed and fought against waste, fraud, and abuse at the federal level. And now he is serving as a senior advisor to the Convention of States Project. 
So those are our panelists. I'm going to open the floor now for questions. We'd like to limit it, at least for the first part, to questions from legislators, because we are really here to train you and prepare you to take this on in your state. I also want to mention that we are live streaming this program today, which we're really excited about. Those grassroots armies of people that you saw, many of them are watching this at home today. So I wanted to make sure you know that. And I will just, if it's okay, kick off this time with the first question because one of the objections that we hear all the time, and I'm sure you hear it all the time too, is what if this Article 5 convention runs away? How can we control an Article 5 convention of the states? And I'll just open it up to our panelists, and then we'll go to you from there. Rita, maybe I'll jump in and start, because I was, I was thinking, my, my badge says I'm a first-time attendee. That's not right. Uh, <laughs> because um, I may have come to an ALEC meeting before maybe anybody in the room. I, I was at an ALEC meeting in 1979 uh, when I just filed the first lawsuit in the country challenging the constitutionality of the change of the timeline for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And, and the question in that case, the ultimate question was, can you change the rules in the middle of the stream of an Article V process? And uh, I represented four Washington state legislators. My case got consolidated with, with the case was filed a couple of weeks later by legislators from Arizona and Idaho, and the three states worked together, and uh, we litigated in federal district court in uh, Boise. Uh, and we were ultimately successful in the uh, federal appellate court in a case called uh, Freeman versus Idaho. And the, um, the holding uh, of that case uh, is not a binding precedent because it's a federal district court decision, but it's a persuasive precedent. And we didn't get the victory out of thin air. We had uh, decisions from the Supreme Court in the 1790s and uh, many, many other uh, uh, precedents, history, law, decisions. We built a solid case that could be rebuilt. And the rule is basically, once you start the Article 5 process, you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream, which is one of the many defenses for if a convention attempts to run away. There are political defenses, there are legal defenses. The political defenses uh, for a convention of states are that it, um, by the way, the history, a convention of states, by definition, means you vote by state. Otherwise, it would be a convention of delegates. I just spent the summer reading the 27-volume series of the ratification of the United States Constitution, which is about 500 pages a book, 26 books. And I, and I went through it all for this purpose. And a convention of states is mentioned multiple times. We didn't, Rob and I didn't make up the title. It, it's been, it, it's, it's made by history. And the definition of a convention of states is a, uh, is a meeting where the states meet as states and vote as states. And there's only one way you do that. It is as one state, one vote. You, uh, in fact, I, I, this may be one point where um, Rob and I may disagree. I, I think it's illegal for the states to even vote by majority, by states, to change the voting rules. You, uh, you have to, a convention of states in the Constitution, I believe, is absolutely required to be one state, one vote. 
so the, um, the political defenses are 34 states just called a convention for the limited purpose of reigning the abuse of power by the federal government. They're going to, uh, the legislatures, not the governor, the legislatures are going to appoint the delegates. If you don't appoint delegates that believe in the process, don't appoint them for heaven's sakes. As long as you appoint uh, one state, one vote, the votes will not be there. Somebody, you know, some delegate from some, you know, leftist state stands up and makes a motion to. Okay, you can blame my state. Okay. I'm from California. It's all right. All right. <laughs> My maybe, apologies to any Cal California legislators in the room. But, but uh, make some motion to do something crazy. Uh, amend the Second Amendment, for example. Uh, that is not germane. It would be ruled as not germane. But the vote on germaneness goes down one state, one vote. And if you guys can't figure out how to get 34 states who agreed to this process to appoint 26 delegates, to uh, which should be the rule for how it's voted, um, the, if you can't do that, then we just don't know about politics at all. And we make decisions about political things on a regular basis. The ultimate defense is this. 13 state legislatures that vote no, it's no. And if it means a single house in a state votes no, the answer is no. So you have to have both houses of, of ratify an amendment. Um, and so if, if a crazy thing got all the way through, survived the lawsuits, survived everything else, survived the multiple other defenses, when, if you can't figure out that there are 13 states with a single house that would vote no on a measure to change the Second Amendment, we don't know anything about politics. We make decisions all the time. It is theoretically possible that President Obama could appoint Rob Nadelson or Mike Ferris to the next vacancy of the Supreme Court. That's, I mean, it's permissible. <laughs> it is possible. The chances of that happening politically are zero. I'm sorry, I just got the call today. Uh, <laughs> well, I hate to tell you, you won't get confirmed. Uh, maybe if Obama nominated you, would. But, but uh, we, we live in the political real world, and we count votes regularly. If you count votes, there is no way, there's just no way that this thing runs away where we get to 38 in any kind of formula at any point at any time. Hey, Tom, can you address the political basis? Yeah. I, uh, first of all, I think I get asked this question all the time. And, and I'm not sure when people ask it why they're asking it, because all you have to do is kind of think for a minute. Matter of fact, you have to actually be highly illogical to think that a convention could run away. And let me give you just some very basic facts. Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Arizona, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Indiana, North and South Dakota. And what has to happen for something crazy is a legislative body has to take it up. I'm the father of no. And the way you do no is you don't do it. So if, in fact, a Second Amendment limiting amendment would to come out, how can you possibly rationalize in your mind that there wouldn't be 13 state houses that would just wouldn't take it up? Which means it's dead. So, so th that's the worst case scenario is somebody's going to do something stupid 
which is, I think is impossible for it to happen, uh, especially since the state, remember the federal government didn't run it. If the federal government was running, I think it could be stupid. But, <laughs> but if the states are running this, none of this is gonna happen. But if it did, you have to be irrational to think that the states aren't gonna stop something that came out of there that limited our freedoms. When we created this thing, and the whole purpose is to restore our freedoms. So I, I think you really have to be upside down, uh, maybe smoking some fairy dust, to think that this is going to happen. It, there's no way politically it's going to happen. Rob, do you want to address process? We have some of that prairie dust in Colorado, by the way. <laughs> it's legal now. Yeah. I just want to. I just want to plug a few uh, holes that haven't that have been left va uh, vacant. Uh, one is from a standpoint of uh, constitutional defenses. Uh, if a convention proposes something that is outside its authority. That is what we lawyers call ultra-virus. That means it's beyond the convention's authority and therefore doesn't have legal effect. In order for ratification to occur, the Congress has to choose a mode of ratification. Congress, which is not going to be a friend to the convention, can quite legitimately say, hey, what you're proposing is simply outside the scope of your authority. We're not going to, we're not going to choose a mode of ratification. This is never going to get to the states. So that's one of many lines of defense along with the potential of the ratification process, lawsuits, the ability of the state to uh, recall its delegates, excuse me, commissioners, and so forth. There are, there are one or two other arguments that uh, haven't been addressed that come up sometimes. One is, well, uh, the Constitutional Convention in 1787 changed the ratification process. Um, what if the Convention for Proposing Amendments changed the ratification process and decided on amendments being ratified by, say, a majority of all the people of the country? Well, the people who made that argument, number one, they don't realize that their characterization of the Constitutional Convention is inaccurate, but they also don't know anything about the law because we've got over 40 uh, reported decisions of courts, including the US Supreme Court, and one of the things they said is that Article 5 has to be followed, and that requires ratification by the states, and you cannot, the court has said in several different decisions, wire around that by changing that method of ratification. Uh, by the way, uh, Mike mentioned the, uh, the fact that the Convention for Proposing Amendments is a convention of states. We don't just know that from historical practice. Here, here's another bit of information. The US Supreme Court itself has said so. In 1831, the US Supreme Court issued a case called, called uh, Smith versus Union Bank, in which it explicitly, explicitly identified a convention for proposing amendments as a convention of states. I, I, I have to tell you, I'm embarrassed when I recognize that, that six years ago, I bought this runaway convention stuff. And it wasn't until I actually got into the, into the meat of the law, the history, that um, I realized that it, what a crock it was. Um, I guess the best way to sum up is the way I sometimes do, and that is to quote the great former and future senator from North Dakota, Kurt Olofsson, sitting right over there, who says that the um, runaway convention is a myth. The runaway Congress is a reality.
I want to bring I want to bring it back home to the legislators sitting in their office with a constituent. And this is really important because what we're trying to do here, this is not theoretical. This panel is intended to be practical. And so that means you're going to face constituents calling your office, writing your office, coming in and sitting with you face to face that are going to pose these arguments to you. Right? And so notes are great. This is all going to be recorded. We'll have this on our website for you. So you need to learn this stuff. But I, I'm a pretty simple guy. I'm a grassroots guy. And so we've got all these scholarly arguments. And you're going to have some people you're going to need those arguments with. But I, I stick to the simple stuff. I mean, what Rob said, that's something I use all the time, right? The runaway convention is a myth. The runaway Congress is a reality. I also ask people this question a lot. People who of good faith, people who are generally on our side of the issue who are opposed to what we're doing. And I say, look, I, I'm not all that smart, but there are a lot of smart people out there talking about this right now. And so I just like to look at what their opinions are, the really smart people, people I respect. And I go down the list, and when you look at the list of people who support this, public figures, scholarly figures, it's overwhelming. I mean, you can start with Mark Levin, who wrote the book, right? Straight out of the Reagan administration. You got Chuck Cooper, who was Ronald Reagan's constitutional attorney. He's now outside constitutional litigator for the NRA. Do you think he's selling out the Second Amendment? Right, you got Limbaugh, you got Hannity, you got Beck, you got Colonel Allen West, Bobby Jindal, Mike Huckabee, the folks sitting on this panel, Professor Randy Barnett, Professor Robbie George, and the list goes on and on. It's extraordinary. And I'm giving you this list, and I would say have a note of all these people, and then just look across your desk at your constituent and say, are all these people stupid? Are they all confused? Like, you get it, and none of them have figured it out? And that's really important, and you put them on the spot like that, and I do this with folks all the time, and then I'll close the political reality with this. You guys are good, you got elected, you know how to talk to people, you know how to talk to your constituents, you know how to talk publicly. You will convince with these arguments every rational person that you cross paths with. I just wanted to add one thing in order to provide you with a resource that might be useful. The arguments that you hear, uh, uh, some of you have gotten the list of questions from Eagle Forum, the supposedly unanswerable questions. They come from a law professor named Larry Tribe at the Harvard Law School who invented them in 1979. He was a liberal law professor opposing a balanced budget amendment convention. The necessary and proper argument that you hear sometimes, oh, Congress can take over the process because that argument was invented by a liberal law professor from Yale Law School named Charles Black in 1963, okay? All of these arguments that you're hearing from, from very deeply conservative groups essentially were invented, or at least first promulgated widely, in the 1960s and 1970s by liberals who were opposing various proposed conservative constitutional amendments. That's where they come from. If you go to the uh, website of the Article 5 Information Center, it's Article 5, the article5info.com, Article 5 Information Center, there's a copy of a paper I wrote which details um, where all of these arguments came from and the context in which they arose. Uh, the whole idea of calling it a constitutional convention, for example, that's a, that's a 20th century development. Nobody in the founding or the 19th century ever called it a constitutional convention. It was called a constitutional convention by people who opposed it in order to scare people. Okay? So, uh, again, uh, there's a paper there uh, at Article 5 Information Center detailing where, where, where all of these scare tactics came from. By the way, the, the case from the 1790s that we cited in this 
from the Supreme Court in our uh, ERA litigation was a decision by the Supreme Court that said you cannot use Article I power in the Article V context. The Necessary and Proper Clause is in Article I, uh, which means the Necessary and Proper Clause cannot be used in the Article V process, nor can the mechanisms for voting by simple majorities in Congress in the Article V process. So it's, it's I just want to chime in for, <clears throat> for a second. Uh, I'm a physician. I'm not a lawyer. These guys make a lot of sense to me. I don't understand it all. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, what is the obligation to fix our country? And so you have somebody sitting across the desk from you, and they raise all these questions, and you give them great answers, and they still haven't changed their mind. The question to ask them is, well, what do you propose to fix the runaway government that we have today? What is your answer? And what you will find is they don't have one. So we're the proverbial ostrich, and the only thing you see of the ostrich is the tail feather sticking up out of the sand. The answer is, is we have to do something. So I, I will say this. Uh, it'll probably make all these people on this panel cringe. I don't care what the potential downside is. The potential side right now is, is we're going down the tank. And I'm not worried about those others. I'm more worried about us doing nothing than doing something that might have some risk. I think our children are worth that. Now you think about it. Aren't they worth it? So, so the question to ask the constituent who is adamantly opposed to this is, What's your solution? Because I came here to solve problems. I didn't came here to sit and let the problems get worse. Thank you. So now we'd like to open the floor for questions Tamara. from our state legislators in the room. I think we're getting hooked up with a mic that we can circulate. Okay. I see a hand back there and a hand up here. Thank you. Sasan, yes. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Eric Brakey from Maine. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I see uh, Ken Quinn here, um, who's the state director in, in my state, who's been working on me really hard on this and uh, has helped bring me along on, on a lot of uh, my initial concerns. Uh, and so I've been coming, uh, I've been agreeing with it more and more. There are two objections that other people raised uh, raised to me, and I wanted to put them before you. I think they're uh, objections that I. Objections apart from some of the typical ones I hear, and I'd love to, for you to have an opportunity to share your thoughts and respond to them. Uh, so the first, the first one is uh, not that. So it, it, not that uh, amendments would come forward that would make radical changes to where things are in a negative way, but that amendments might come forward that. Uh, codify into the Constitution perhaps certain federal programs that are already there, which are currently extra-constitutional. So for example, if it came down to it and amendments were coming uh, to the state legislators, uh, you know, which, which politicians would want to be on record voting against, you know, enshrining in the Constitution programs like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid programs like that. That's the, so that's the first uh, that's the first um, objection that people have brought to me that I wanted to run by you. The second one, um, and this, you know, as I talk to certain groups that I agree with 95% of the time, but are really kind of uh, work on, uh, you know, against this issue. One of the uh, one of the objections that I've heard from them is um, an objection around judicial precedent, um, and and their argument that. 
if, if you know, any, any constitutional amendments that, that are made would give an activist court the ability to throw out existing precedent uh, from past court cases and start, start fresh with a new interpretation on things. Um, and, and what might that lead to? So those are the two objections that uh, I wanted to see if I could get your feedback on. Thank you. Well, to answer, for the first objection was that an amendment might come out that would codify or constitutionalize programs that may not uh, now be constitutional. Uh, I may have been the unwitting author of that objection. It's interesting to see how the other side is using it. Um, at one time, the balanced budget amendments that were being proposed talked in terms of conceding to Congress a certain percentage of the gross domestic product. In other words, the balanced budget amendment would say something like, Congress may not spend more than 19% of the gross domestic product. And so I counseled in the Article 5 handbook that I wrote for ALEC back in 2011, I counseled that when you prepare a balanced budget amendment that you don't do that. That's one of several reasons not to do that. You don't want the court or anyone else to have the excuse for saying, well, when the amendment is passed, that validated all the other programs that would existed in the past, e even though they might have been under a constitutional cloud. But that's matter, basically a matter of draftsmanship, of technical draftsmanship. And I think everybody now pretty much understands that. So uh, that doesn't strike me as a very, uh, uh, really a serious objection. The other one is that uh, amendments could give activist courts the excuse to engage in more activism. Well, I'd suggest that they don't really need an excuse. I mean, they've already got an excuse that they've got now. They already engage in plenty of activism, and the existing Constitution gives them the material to distort to accomplish their purposes. Now, uh, the real question to ask is, are we better off with amendments or without amendments? I'll give you a concrete example. Are we better off with the First Amendment or without the First Amendment? You know, the First Amendment has been distorted somewhat out of its original understanding. But I, for one, am really glad we have the First Amendment. Uh, and similarly with other parts of the Constitution. So, um, you know, the, 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 uh, positing a lot of what ifs is um, uh, when we have an immediate problem that is not a what if, but it's a real, is, it, it, to me, is just making up artificial objections that, that, don't, that don't have much water. Will it be necessary for these amendments to be carefully drafted so that courts have less excuse to run away with them? Sure. And as we uh, approach the number of states necessary to call a convention, you're going to have a lot of great minds coming forward and a lot of work on the drafting of, of these amendments. Um, but that's a problem, I think, that we would all welcome. One factor um, that we need to consider is that with our application, unique to our, the Convention of States application, we intend to do something about the runaway courts. Uh, because limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government includes limiting the power and jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and other, other federal courts. Because the, the court has said approximately 20 times, usually in dissents, but sometimes in majority opinions, that the only realistic check on our power is our own internal sense of self-restraint. The founders would be astonished with that. Because no branch of, the, of any level of government is supposed to be, have the final power to determine how much power that branch has. And the Supreme Court's figured out that until we check them, 
we will have no powers. And so the way they're appointed can be changed. The limits uh, of terms of the courts can be changed. The ability of state legislatures to override uh, decision, vacate decisions of the Supreme Court can be added um, to that. For example, if, if you had the provision that 30 state legislatures could overturn or vacate a decision of the Supreme Court, the biggest political issue in America right now would be, are there 30 states that are going to vacate the same-sex marriage decision? And we would all be saying, well, you know, that decision's good for now, but wait till January and see if 30 states vacate it. I think it would be vacated in a heartbeat. In fact, I don't think it would even have ever been made because we would have vacated Roe versus Wade a long time before that. And so the, uh, um, so, giving checks and balances on the judiciary is front and center in what we are trying to accomplish. I'd, I'd like to add one one thing. Uh, you know, it's intellectually dishonest what we're doing in this country. Every year, the Congress appropriates money for $450 billion worth of programs that haven't had a vote of authorization. Now, think about that. No, the Committee of Authorization hasn't reauthorized over $450 billion worth of discretionary and mandatory programs, and yet they're funded. So, so when you have the discussion, what about Medicare and Medicaid? Well, first of all, as a purist, the enumerated powers doesn't give the federal government the right to set up Medicare and Medicaid, right? It doesn't. It's only through a distortion of the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Commerce Clause and the General Welfare Clause do we have this ability coming from Congress. So it's not about whether or not we'll do that or not do it. If America thinks we want to do it, and there's the votes to really do it, then we'll do it. But let's be honest, let's put it all out there in the open and say, wouldn't you really like to have some choice about how we do this? Instead of the politicians every year promising more on the, on the entitlement program, but never creating a revenue stream. And I'd remind you that it was a Republican president and Republican House and a Republican Senate that created Medicare Part D, which is $13 trillion in unfunded liabilities that they never once created a revenue stream for. So tell me how that's intellectually honest. It's not. It's dishonest. And so what you have to do is turn that right around on them and say, don't you really want us to be pure to the point to where we talk about what our rules are? And if we decide we want to do Medicare, we can do it. We'll keep it. Nobody's going to throw Medicare away. Everybody knows that. Too many people have changed their lifestyle to be dependent on it. But at least we ought to be honest about it and have the debates. If you're a state legislator and you have a question, if you could make your way to the Senate, the center, not to the Senate, to the center aisle, um, that would help us speed the process along a little bit and get you the mic. Or, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sylvia Allen, Senator Allen from Arizona. Uh, I kind of have two things. The first one real quick is, uh, the big thing lately that I've had said to me is, uh, don't you know that George Soros supports an Article 5 and he has the power and the blah, 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 you know. Okay, so that's one. The other one, though, and it has to do with uh, Congress's authority to then uh, set how the states ratify the convention. And is it true that it can be through the vote of the people or through the vote of the legislature? So if it can be, so they're saying, well, Congress will put it through the vote of the people, and then they'll be able to manipulate all those elections. 
George Soros gives money to U.S. Senate candidates. Conservatives give money to U.S. Senate candidates. Giving money to U.S. Senate candidates is a, a neutral mechanism in politics. The Article 5 convention process, Soros apparently gives money to Wolfpack, uh, or that process, who wants to tr uh, reverse Citizens United. That doesn't mean that he's, he's funding balanced budget amendment or convention of states or anybody else. He's not, you know, he's not funding any of, of our efforts whatsoever. And I know he's not uh, funding BBA, for example, and so on. Um, and Dave Badolf's here in the room and he could tell me if I was wrong. Um, but the uh, uh, people are just simply, actually, sometimes they, they're defamatory. When they say, we get funded by George Soros, that's defamation. And one of these days, we're going to pick the right target and go do something about that, perhaps. But the, uh, it, it's just simply not true. Um, and it's, it is a process that can be used by either side of the political process. But let the, a leftist thing try to get through 34 states. It's not going to happen. You can't get 34 states to propose a George Soros idea. Um, the, you know, and before you go to the yeah, ratification, yeah. I want to address this too, because I deal with this all over the country. And in almost every meeting I go to, somebody stands up and slanders us, one person, and says, well, I understand that you're funded by George Soros or a bunch of leftist groups fund you. At the last meeting I was at, I said, well, let me tell you this. You, right now, use your phone, use my iPad, find a group, a leftist group, that endorses Convention of States, and I'll pay you $5,000. Because there are none. Zero, zip, zilch. And the reason there are none, it's important. Because they can't do what they want to do with Convention of States. It's not that they're dumb, they're smart people. Look, the biggest organization on the playing field right now, just in terms of volunteers, and is Convention of States, right? And so if they thought that they could get done what they wanted, why wouldn't they try to co-op this organization? Well, we should see dozens of leftist endorsements for Convention of States. They're smart people. They should be funding us if they, but they understand because of the way these folks crafted this application, there is absolutely nothing other than restraining the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government that can be done under the Convention of States application. You, you want to talk about the ratification yeah. methods? The Ar Article 5 says that Congress can pick one of two ratification methods for ratifying amendments. It can either be done by the the legislatures or by specially held uh, ratification conventions. The state legislatures decide how the ratification delegates are chosen, not Congress. Congress gets to decide whether you have state convention or ratification delegates. The, the two times we've used the ratification convention model are for the ratification of the original Constitution and the repeal of the 21st Amendment. And the repeal of the 21st Amendment, they, uh, there were delegates who ran uh, on a, I'm a yes vote, I'm a no vote. And people voted for them basically as, as an, almost the same as a ballot initiative. But each state legislature gets to choose how you do that. And you, you can pick your delegates however the state legislature wants. And having an election is not a bad thing, but here's Congress, there is no way on our application that Congress is going to take it to put it to the to the more populist uh, ratification convention process. Why? Who's more likely to be friendly to power of Congress, state legislatures or grassroots? 
I guarantee you they do not want to put this in front of the grassroots. If, if, if they do, everybody in this room can send all of your grandchildren free to Patrick Henry College <laughs> for all four years. And so, uh, um, I, your specific questions are number one, regarding George Soros, and number two, regarding ratification by, by referendum, okay? Ratification by referendum is out. In the United, United States Supreme Court in 1920 decided a case called Hawk versus Smith that dealt with the question of whether the state legislatures or any other authority could delegate ratification of constitutional amendments to, uh, to, to a referendum. And the answer is no, absolutely not. And that holding has been repeated by courts ever since over the intervening century. So that's simply out. It's an idea proposed by people who don't know their Article 5 law. Number two, George Soros doesn't support anybody on this panel, but I'll tell you who he does support. George Soros supports a policy organization in Washington, D.C. called the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. On October 14, 2014, the president of the Center for uh, uh, Budget and Policy Priorities had an article in the Washington Post in which he slammed the idea of a convention of states every which way an inveterate opponent. Now, if George Soros wanted a convention of states, would his funding puppet go, go to the Washington Post to tell us what a bad idea it was? End of story. Go ahead, sir. I'm Kevin Lundberg from uh, Colorado. I've uh, spent over a dozen years in the Colorado legislature, and, and I can tell you, I know of no other issue that is of a higher importance or significance for a state legislator to be involved in. My question is this, You've, uh, I'd like you to discuss the strategy that you are employing by organizing your grassroots efforts by legislative district. Sure, so the, the, from our perspective, I think this is inarguable, the most important uh, model of legislative organizing, where the power resides in America is in the state legislative districts. And the reason for that is your constituents are close to you. They can actually come into your office and talk to you. And for the average person to get an appointment with their congressperson is very difficult. With their senator, almost impossible. You know, and so, but they can actually come talk to you guys. And so we believe that's where people should be organized. So I have to say that from my perspective as a grassroots organizer, Convention of States is more important than Convention of States. The point is to organize an army of grassroots activists, self-governing, self-directed grassroots activists all over this country at the state legislative district level in every state legislative district. You guys need a district captain in every district who will come talk to you, who will tell you what the grassroots think, who will tell you that they have your back if you do the right thing, who might pressure you if they think you're doing the wrong thing constitutionally. So the overarching goal and strategy is to make sure that you guys those of you who are in favor of reigning in the government have an army at your back in your own district. And one of the things we ask you to do for us is let us know if you feel like there aren't enough people in your district that you're hearing from, we'll make sure. We'll go out, we'll find that army, we'll recruit that army, we'll train them up. You guys should not be in this fight alone. You're the point of the spear, but that spear needs a very robust shaft behind it when you thrust it into the federal beast. That's what we're building. You guys are the point of the spear, we're building the shaft for that spear for you. I'm Kurt Nisley, state representative from Indiana, in my first term. And during my first term, uh, we had the RIFRA 
thing. I'm sure that you all remember that from the news, right? So we passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and a week later we passed a fix to it uh, because of the media storm that, that took place during that week. And that brings me to my biggest objection uh, to the Convention of States is I can guarantee there's going to be some kind of a crisis, either manufactured or real, that would erupt during this convention and to, to, to steer it to someplace else. I know we have all the best intentions, but once we get to it, it's out of our control. Uh, it's, it's in another place. No, it's not. Okay. And, and it's, it's not true for multiple reasons. You got, all, every state here is a part of the uh, process that uh, the, the organization that created the Uniform Commercial Code, the, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on it, but you, there's process there. You go and you draft proposed laws, Uniform Law Commission. Um, and you draft proposed things. Until it comes back to your state and you adopt it, it's a proposal. It's nothing. There's no final authority. So the crisis that will be created, the battleground on this, it's, it, it's a relatively intense right now. There will be a lot of public attention, a lot of education. By the way, the greatest education of the American people about checks and balances, limited government and the Constitution itself will by televising the Convention of States and the debates. You will do more constitutional instruction in a short time than has ever been done in a hundred years. But the real battle, the ultimate crisis, and the big fight is going to be when it comes back to your states for ratification. And the question is, do you have the backbone at that point in time to stand the fight? And Indiana, I understand, I'm, a, I'm good friends with several members of, the, of your legislature, Tom Washburn in particular, uh, and, and uh, the, the problem there was the big corporations, you guys could have stood, the, from what I've heard, could have withstood the assault that came from the left political activists. It was the big corporations weighing in on the side of the homosexual agenda that, that was the, the real problem. And, it, and if you, you know, that, that happened. But what, what didn't happen and what won't happen here is that you will not be met without an army that comes on the other side. And the, the question is, are you going to listen to the people in Cupertino, California, or are you going to listen to the people in your own districts? And if there's a thousand people from your own district saying ratify the amendment that stops the ability of the uh, Supreme Court to go unchecked, then you know, let the corporations try that. They're, they're going to have a more difficult time focusing their energy on that, uh, especially if there's four, five or six amendments coming out of the Convention of the States. So I think that I understand that, but it ultimately is a question of grassroots activism and political backbone, and we have to have that every time. But the, the, the it just, are we going to get something good, or are we not going to get something good? There's no scenario under that, that where we get something bad. Bad cannot happen from that. They can defeat the good. Uh, just, just for a, a question of structure here, um, when talking about people who are attending the convention, I don't like the word delegate because the word delegate has somewhat changed its meaning since the founding. I prefer the term commissioner, which is a technical, technically correct term, because it reflects who these people at the convention are. 
they are given a commission by your state legislature and then they're subject to instruction by the state legislature and that continues all through the convention itself. So it's not true that once you send them off to Philadelphia or wherever they're going, you lose control of them. You have this control all uh, continuously. One of the reasons why the other side has been so successful is they've got one body in one place called Congress that they can lobby. Once you spread the decision-making power out among 50 state legislatures, among people who are much closer to the grassroots and to mainstream America, it's much tougher for uh, people on the other side to control them. That's why they almost all oppose a convention of states. So it, it's not something that you're likely to lose control of in the passion of the moment. And even if it did happen, which is highly unlikely, you'd have the ratification process. Okay, we are growing short on time. I hate to say that, but we're going to let these two gentlemen who are in line have the last two questions. And I'm going to ask our panelists to please try to keep their answers brief. I also want to mention that... <laughs> Three lawyers? Seriously? The doctor maybe, but... I also want to mention that if you have more questions or concerns or would just like to have further discussion, I am still scheduling some appointments for Senator Coburn and Mike Ferris and Mark Meckler. I think Rob has other responsibilities this afternoon. But please see me immediately after this workshop, and I'll get you scheduled to ask your questions. I'm Go available ahead. this afternoon. Okay, okay great. Um, I'll try and keep it really condensed, go real fast. Nathan Dom, Oklahoma. I know Dr. Ferris and I have talked about this extensively, so if he doesn't want to answer on this, uh, the other panelists do, that's fine. Um, I have a couple of different concerns with it. I appreciate what you guys are trying to do. I'm on board with the amendments, the balanced budget, the, you know, the term limits, the, free, uh, the freedom, uh, re regulation freedom amendment. I'm on board with those things, but I do see the possibility for a possible hijacked convention or, you know, somehow it, it, it turning awry. And so I see two different possibilities. And, and part of that is because I've been in party conventions where even with a lot of grassroots people there, they've blatantly violated the rules and had a predetermined outcome that they wanted to have done. So I've seen how conventions can be turned around. So I see two possibilities because it was mentioned that there's no, that, that, you know, that the political ramifications for it and the check by the states, that the Congress wouldn't allow these things to happen, the grassroots wouldn't allow it to happen, the people wouldn't allow it to happen. But I see, just plain devil's advocate, I see two ways that this could possibly happen. One is that it goes through the process and then Congress decides to actually send it to, to conventions in the states. I know that some of you believe that will never happen, but if there's a methodology put in place that actually further empowers Congress, I could see Congress then sending that to conventions of the states instead of to the actual legislatures. It was mentioned the 18th and the 21st Amendments. One was adopted by legislatures, one was adopted by conventions because they didn't really expect the 18th Amendment to go into effect, so they changed the way to get the outcome that they wanted later on. So I could see if Congress was empowered somehow through the convention, there was an amendment that was passed that, that they would take that political risk to try to further their power. The other methodology that I see, because you know it's used the Articles of, convention, Articles of Confederation said that it had to be unanimous. When this convention, the Philadelphia Convention happened, they changed that threshold. I know people say that that could never happen, that they could never lower the threshold. But what would be the possibility, uh, my second question would be, what would be the possibility of it coming out of a convention and it being sent to the Supreme Court 
and the Supreme Court gets to uphold it. Because we've seen the Supreme Court uphold unconstitutional laws constantly, we would not win that political battle because the people think that whatever the Supreme Court says is the be all end all, so they could just send it directly to the Supreme Court for ratification and totally bypass the system. So that's kind of, I, I see some methodologies. Um, let me um, talk about the uh, second question first. Um, the, it is a myth that the uh, convention, the, the Constitutional Convention in the uh, first Constitutional Convention, 1787, cha illegally changed the ratification process. The convention sent their recommendation for the Constitution and for the new process to Congress, as was required, not by Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation, but by the uh, appointments by the states. The states gave the same rule for different reasons. So it's the right rule is a different source of law. And so Congress unanimously approved, not the new constitution, but the new process, and sent the new process to the state legislatures, not to the conventions, to the state legislatures. All 13 state legislatures approved the new process by calling conventions. And so I, I, I use this, I was in a board of elders for our church for a long, long time, and our rule, our self-imposed rules as elders is we had to vote unanimously on things. We could have changed it to two-thirds vote, but we would have had to first vote unanimously to change the rule for voting. That's what they did. The states unanimously approved the, the new process. Congress unanimously approved the new process. And so there was no change of process illegally. The, the, the new process was approved by the old process before we used the new process. So the idea that was done illegally and that can be done again, well, yeah, I guess if somebody could call a convention that would get 34 states to approve a convention to change the ratification process, and you got it through there, and you got 38 states to ratify the new ratification process, then and only then could you have a different ratification process. You have to change the, from the old process to the new process by using the old process to do the switch of the methodology. That's what they did the first time. That's what we'd have to do here. Um, if the Supreme Court goes awry on some of this, um, the Supreme Court isn't that stupid because they believe that the greatest threat, you read Supreme Court, enough Supreme Court decisions, you'll see that the, what they thought was the worst thing in the history of America uh, was the Roosevelt court packing scheme because it threatened their power. And so they will not take on something like this. And if they do, we call another the convention and we get rid of them. The, the, I, just to supplement Mike's answer here, there is a very common, this mythology that the Constitutional Convention disregarded its power and changed the ratification process. Very, very widely believed. I, in fact, believed it myself up until six years ago. It's based partly on a lack of knowledge of the process that went on. It's also based upon a misunderstanding of founding era vocabulary. The Constitutional Convention was not called under the Articles of Confederation. If it had been, it would have been subject to the rules of the Articles. It was called by the states acting in their sovereign capacity outside the Articles. Also, people who mention that never mention the fact that this isn't the only convention of states we've ever had. We've had about 36 bodies that are convention of states or convention of colonies before independence, and about six of those were general conventions, meaning from all parts of the country. 
and they've all stayed, you know, they've all stayed on mission. We, the, the, the uh, you would think in once in thirty, if if a runaway were possible, uh, once in thirty-six times you would have seen it, but in fact, uh, we, in fact, we haven't seen it. The other thing is the analogy to party conventions. I've heard that made. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who I consider a great American, has compared this to a Democratic or Republican national convention. It's unfortunate the word convention is used for both kinds of bodies. They're very different. This is essentially a diplomatic meeting. It's a diplomatic meeting among, it's much smaller, you know, far smaller than, than mass uh, uh, party conventions. But it's essentially a diplomatic meeting among sovereignties held under those standards that are derived from those of international law. Uh, this is not a, st a stampedable type body. Arizona Representative Bob Thorpe. Um, and actually, Rob, you, you just touched on this. If you could elaborate just a little bit, because I think that the, uh, a lot of people don't understand the rich history of conventions, federal conventions, especially 1861, uh, when you, you consider the tensions, the, the emotions that were uh, at stake uh, during that. And, and uh, I, I love to point out 1861 as, as an example of why a runaway convention is probably uh, would never occur because it should have occurred then if it was ever going to occur. So if you, if you can give us all uh, kind of a primer on our convention history, uh, I think that's a great one to take back to our districts. Thank you. Just brief. 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 Well, um, a 30-second primer. Yeah, 30-second <laughs> summary. We have a 300-year uh, history of conventions among the states or among colonies. The first one was held in 1689. The last one was held in 1922. Most of those have involved uh, meetings among states of the same region of the country. Uh, but some of them have been general conventions. The last general convention, and I'll finish with this, the last general convention was in 1861, and its function was to draft an amendment to try to turn off, to try to head off the Civil War. Uh, it did, in fact, draft an amendment in very, very difficult times. Unfortunately, it didn't have Article V powers. But the, the, the lesson of that convention, the Washington Conference Convention of 1861, is that the rules and the protocols can be followed and they work. It was in all respects a dress, a dress rehearsal for an Article V convention. I'm so sorry that we are out of time, so I'm going to ask Mark Meckler to wrap us up. So just a few brief items. Uh, one is housekeeping. So on your chairs or on your tables of this card, we're looking for co-sponsors, obviously sponsors and co-sponsors. Also, you see at the bottom the Article 5, or sorry, the Convention of States Caucus. Check that if you'd like to belong to the caucus. It's a private website for legislators only. On that website, you'll find a complete set of drafted rules for the convention. Uh, drafted by Rob, some consultation by Mike Ferris. So the rule, there is a complete rule set based on the history of Article 5, based on common procedures that you guys will be familiar with, parliamentary procedures. So go ahead and get signed up as a sponsor, a co-sponsor. Uh, you can talk to Rita about this stuff too, and please sign up for the Article, or sorry, the Convention of States Caucus. That caucus, by the way, now has about 220, 27. 227 members 47. representing 40 states. Really extraordinary. All signed in, all able 
able to view those rules, comment on those rules if you see things you think should be changed. So that's number one. Number two is if you're a legislator and you'd like to meet with these esteemed experts on Article 5, people who have an intimate perspective, then you can see Rita immediately afterwards. We still have a few appointments available for private meetings. So take advantage of that. It's pretty incredible to get an opportunity to talk to these guys one-on-one -on -one about this. And the last thing is a really exciting announcement. You know, we're all moving towards an Article 5 convention. We know it's going to happen. It's not an if, it's, an o, it's a when. Our organization has put on now, the grassroots of the organization, multiple convention simulations around the country. We're getting pretty good at this. It's pretty exciting to watch. I've watched a bunch of grassroots gr groups do it. We are announcing here that in the coming year, and we, we haven't figured out the exact date and details, we're going to hold a mock convention made up of state legislators from around the country. So if you're a member of the caucus, you'll be invited to come. We'll get a chance to use these rules and see how these work. We'll film it. We'll get a chance to prove out that you, as state legislators, can be entrusted for your constituents with the United States Convention. So get signed up for the COS Caucus. We'll get the details out to you on that, and we'll announce that, that mock convention soon. So thank you guys for coming. God bless you. Go out there and be the point of the spirit. We appreciate you. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.